The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. sum up as best we can what has been said. That is to say, I'm trying to show that Paul the Apostle's approach, namely, where are the wise, where are the scribes, where are the disputers of this age in which he challenges the wisdom of this world and points out that it has been made foolishness with God is still the way that we should also approach the wisdom of this world. It doesn't mean that we are to be looking down on philosophers and scientists and theologians who are not Christian and who do not share our convictions, of course we must not. We have been taken out by grace from the same position, and therefore what we have have, we have received by grace. Boasting is always excluded. The sin of pride is always at the door, but we must pray to God and His Spirit to enable us to resist, but at the same time we must be bold, fearless in the presentation of the Christian religion. Christ said, I am the way, and I am the truth and the life. He didn't say, I probably am, and you probably would do well to believe in me. His point is that if you do not believe in him, you are lost, and that means for this life as well as for the life to come, That means for philosophy and for science and theology as well as for everything else. Now, let's therefore look once again at the two contrasting positions. The first thing that seems to me to be necessary is to always be alert to the fact that there are only two positions. There are 57 varieties of Heinz's products, but there are only two points of view in the interpretation of life. You can divide up the non-Christian position into ever so many points of view. And this student has followed that professor, and that man has it. He ha- he's an idealist. This is a Boston personalist. This is that man. He has the light. Well, nobody has the light. That is, from the Christian point of view, we must realize that the weakness that is in all of them is the same weakness, but it is a fatal weakness. It is a sickness unto death. It is spiritual death. Now that, therefore, is the first thing to remember. That simplifies things no end, and it means that everybody, however little or however much education he has had, can sit down with the most learned and be unafraid. Paul had been afraid, but he wasn't afraid. After the Lord appeared to him and said, I have much people in this city, even in Corinth, even in the, in the society where the learned and the sophisticated are. Now the gospel is the same for all, for poor and rich, learned and unlearned, and we must present it in precisely the same way, except that we must, of course, as those who are interested in winning people, learn their vocabulary, their language. And there's good reason, therefore, for many of you young students to enter into philosophy. 
and then get a good education, the best you can, in particular, since we're talking mostly about philosophy, also understand philosophy. Now, there is such a thing as a Christian philosophy, which is based simply on the presuppositions of the Christian religion. And we must put the Christian theology and philosophy and science over against the non-Christian philosophy and science. And then it is a struggle unto the death. Now, that struggle can't be carried on by an appeal to an area which is neutral between both, an area of facts, so that you can prove that your position is more in accordance with facts than is his, or by an appeal to logic as such. I'm not saying logic is to be excluded, but there is no logic as such apart from the position of which it is a part. If you believe the Christian position, then you believe that by logic the creature is to order the revelational content that comes to him as best he can. But he is therefore to make a system out of it, the content of the scriptures in relation to all nature and history, but he is not to think of that system as something that is the product of logical concatenation, that it is a deductive system. It isn't. It is the organization of biblical content put in order in relation to one another. Now, I've called this side apostate thinking, as we took, which is the thinking that came into the world when man accepted the suggestion of Satan that he be independent, autonomous, which means he made himself the center of all predication, the final reference point. Now, he replaces God. He puts himself in the place of God, which means he is a rationalist. That is, he attempts to do what only God can do, namely, interpret all reality and say what it is. Well, of course, man cannot say that. He, at the same time, has introduced the idea that God himself doesn't know, that God is confronted with an infinity of facts that he hasn't yet explored, and consequently, that's irrationalism. Now, this apostate thinking, this falling away from God, this covenant-breaking attitude, this attempt to repress the truth in which every man is created, that he is the creature, that he is confronted with God's requirements. Now, that effort to repress comes to expression first in Greek thinking, and there you have the same rationalism and the same irrationalism, mostly rationalism. I've put rationalism first and irrationalism second, and in modern thought, irrationalism first and rationalism second, but they're always both present in all men that are apostate thinkers. In the nature of the case, they're always present in every man, because, you see, man assumes that he is here as a drop of water in this infinitely extended bottomless ocean. That's irrationalism. He assumes that the fact the world is not created, that's pure irrationalism, pure contingency. There is nothing that is stressed so much in modern thinking as that, but it was also present already in ancient thinking because all apostate thinking is thinking which says that God hasn't control of the facts and he can't tell you what they are and he can't tell you what you must do with respect to them because nobody knows. Well now, then you have that monistic, it's all monism in the sense that the creator-creature distinction is wiped out 
Therefore you have all is water, all is air, all is indefinite, all is flux, or all is static. It's always all. That is to say, it's always assumed that God and man are of one piece. And if man is distinct, now it is because he's accidentally cut loose from God and he will be brought up into a union of absorption again with God hereafter. That's the doctrine of immortality. Now, all of that comes to its climax in Aristotle. And the Roman Catholic Church, as we've seen, particularly in its greatest theologian, Thomas Aquinas, has self-consciously taken this method of Aristotle, which is based on the assumption that the world is here by chance and that it's man's business to make some sort of connection between things, though it's impossible to do it. Of course, he doesn't admit it's impossible. He has to string all the beads, and he can't string two of them. Now, that's the impasse, the absolute blind alley into which Greek thought ran and with which it ended. And that's why Paul said, look, isn't it obvious to you? If you'd only open your eyes, you'd see what's happened. Down through these centuries, here we are. You can't offer a single solution for a single problem. Not only that, but you have absolutely brought men into hopelessness and despair. Well, now, that's in the Romanist position. The Romanist position, I put R into the Christian side because there is a little Christianity in Romanism, of course, but it's a combination of Aristotle and Christ. You know that wonderful combination of, what was it, one elephant? How do you make that combination? One elephant and one doggy, and that makes half and half, you know. Grind them up together and you have hot dogs. Well. I didn't eat hot dogs yesterday. I never have had one and never expect to have one. <laughs> I'm not prejudiced against wieners, but that's the Yankee attitude. Now, that's, that then is Romanism. Now, that Romanism is with us today. There are many great Romanist teachers of theology and philosophy, Jacques Maritain, Gilles Saint, many others. Now, they still hold essentially the same position that Thomas Aquinas held, but they are influenced by modern thinking, too. And they are trying their level best, of course, to show that this Romanist position is the best answer, and there are a lot of Protestants that are falling for it. Now, then we have, going on from there, we have, of course, the Christian position unchanged, but we have it re-expressed and more fully expressed in Luther and in Calvin, which is to say they said the Bible is the word of God. It's this place from which we get the light on history and nature even. There isn't an iota tittle of light anywhere, says Calvin, except it finally comes from Christ and the scriptures on all things. Now, that is the frankest of acceptance of a totality view of life on the authority of God through Christ and Scripture. Christianity is totalitarian, it's authoritarian, it's everything bad from the non-Christian point of view, and Calvinism is by all odds the worst, because it is the most consistently Christian. But that's precisely why you need Calvinism to answer the current views, because Romanism and Arminianism compromises with a very poison of apostate thought and therefore can never challenge, uh, challenge that thought in any adequate way. 
And that's why the Romanist and the Arminian position, I'm just using those two, the Lutheran is very similar, uh, in spite of the fact, of course, that many of them are very fine Christian people, but the position of traditional apologetics is to make an appeal to facts and to logic or a combination as though those things were already accepted in common between the two positions, and that's precisely not the case. In other words, I have colored glasses on, so does the other man have colored glasses on. Only my colored glasses are taken from the scriptures, his are from the corruption of the natural man. Now, then, Mr. Smith, <laughs> what do you think? I'm going to have a youngster like Mr. Smith do, uh, do me on this? <laughs> We have the Reformation theology, Lutheran Catholic, and still the two circuit position. And then we have modern thinking controlled from Kant, by Kant in its theology, in its philosophy, in its science. And you have all kinds of interaction between them. There are, in the period of modern area, three outstandingly great theologians Schleiermacher, Ritchell, and Karl Barth. I'm forgetting about all others because I want to hit the main spots. In the development of philosophy, you have in the 19th century, first of all, spirit philosophy, idealism, then you have life philosophy, existential philosophy, beginning with Kierkegaard, and I've put his name partly on the theology side, mostly on the philosophy side, and Heidegger exclusively philosophy, Sartre exclusively philosophy, and I've put Schleiermacher, given a little Christianity, not very much, ritual, well, it's about the same much, part a little more, Bart, 99%, well, 96% or 7% Kant, and 3%, 2%, or 1% Christianity. Now, in other words, I'm generous to Bart, <laughs> because I don't think, I, I seriously do not think there is any gospel in the theology of Karl Barth. Now, I don't judge the man, Karl Barth, understand, and we must hope for the best, we must pray for the best, and we must give him all the credit in the world that we possibly can. But then we owe it to Christ's little ones to warn them against being taken off on the sideline away from the true faith. Now, therefore, we ought to realize that the, that the movement which centers today in modern theology, there are many others, as you know, Nelson Foray and uh, Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr, and many others that you might wish to mention, but we're only concentrating on Karl Barth. Now, I think he gets his inspiration from modern philosophy, from Kant, through Kierkegaard, and, and therefore, I have to put the arrows this way, that is to say, the most of his thinking is controlled by principles of this type of thinking. Now, I'm giving Barth this much influence, he claims to have influence from Calvin and all of that. Now, modern science is, of course, the same thing. Barth accepts modern science, the phenomenalism of it, that Bultmann does, that there is a realm, he calls it, three-story universe, the universe of science in which everything happens according to certain laws that are unchangeable, and Christianity better adjust itself to that view of modern science as though there were any such thing as an intelligible 
view of science, except it is based on the Christian position. We make as Christians the mistake of our life. If we grant that it is possible for the natural man to give a true interpretation of any fact, it doesn't matter. It's not that he can give true interpretation of physics and chemistry and biology, but not of religion. He cannot give a true interpretation of these things, of any of these things. Now, we do need, of course, the concept of common grace to account for the fact that in spite of this truth, that he does not have the insight into the truth. Basically, he can accomplish many things, he can do many good things, he can learn many things, he can discover many facts, and all of that. Well, we give him all the credit in the world that we can, but we shall not admit that he has the right principle at bottom at all. And that's the point at issue. Now, therefore, let us then look at Karl Barth's theology a little more fully. Or let me say one more thing about this thing as a whole. I saw a little girl on the train from Detroit to Grand Rapids one time, and she was sitting on her daddy's lap and slapped him in the face. Now, if that daddy hadn't held this little girl in the on his knee and in his hands, she couldn't have slapped him. Suppose he dropped her on the floor or out of the window. There, wouldn't, there would not have been any slapping done. In other words, the presupposition of the ability of the little girl to slap the daddy was that she was held, upheld by her daddy. And though she was as mad as a hornet for the moment and was crying and furious, hating her daddy as best she could for the moment at least, the daddy loved her and pleaded with her calm down and to be a loving child. Now God pleads with men through Christ, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And therefore we must plead with men, we must be sympathetic with them, we must place ourselves in their position, we must see how deeply horrible lost they are. There is no exit for them. They're in one of these great big tanks that I used to see in Indiana into which they threw the through the cabbage or the sauerkraut, and it, it was 20, 30 feet high. How could you get out? There's no exit. Well, therefore, you must go in there with them. But the thing you must not do, go in there, go in there without having a way of getting out. Now, I'm not going to put Mrs. Hendrickson back into this cauldron uh, once she's gotten out without the help of her husband, apparently. Now, there's somebody in this barrel, and you uh, want to save him. Well, if you're an Armenian or a Roman Catholic, you'll jump in after and say, uh, accept the gospel, accept the gospel. Well, the trouble is, if you've done that, you've denied the gospel yourself, and therefore you have to accept it, and neither of you can. Now, don't you see? However, if you go down and you have a belt around your middle, and here's a solid peg, then you go down and have, you can be wound out because you are connected with it. Then you can help him, don't you see? But if you don't retain your connection, if your foundation isn't the acceptance of and the assumption of the truth of the Christian religion, it's absolute truth, then you in, in turn in need of salvation. Now, therefore, what we should rather do is go to this man in this situation and say to him, Hath not God, what are you interested in? You meet somebody on a train at various times. I have one time from San Francisco to 
Los Angeles, we had assigned seats. I say that because you might misinterpret the fact that I was sitting next to a nice young girl. Uh, we talked, and she saw I had a clergy. And uh, when the ticket w was taken up, she was tired of sitting looking, so she said to me, uh, are you a clergyman? Yes. Where are you? Well, Philadelphia. And uh, then I told her that I was not having a church, but I was teaching in a seminary, training young men for the ministry. What on earth can you teach a young man today that hasn't been disproved by science about Christianity, she said. Well, then the fat was in the fire. <laughs> we talked from San Francisco to Los Angeles. She shook hands with me, most appreciative. She says nobody had ever challenged her unbelief before. Now, whether you have six hours or seven, that much of a trainer from Philadelphia to Boston, it's seven hours. Then I had a graduate student in physics. I, what's your interest? What's your interest? First, you talk about the weather. And when that's exhausted, you ask him about his family, if he's got one or he's intending to get one. Uh, and then you ask him, and that's all exhausted, about his work. And then he's this, and he'll tell you gladly about himself. Everybody gladly talks about himself. That's a good Anknüpfungspunkt. And therefore, you say to him, what are you doing? And where are you going? Well, then from there on, it's only a matter of time. You say, tell me about it. I know nothing about your field. Tell me about it. I know nothing. Well, that's true. I didn't know a thing about his field. He told me about it. But it wasn't difficult to point out that the problem he faced in his field is precisely the same problem that everybody faces in his own field, the problem of tying facts together into a whole, the individual and the universal, the, the facts and the laws. He had no answer. He had to admit it, that there was on his basis no answer at all. You must stand... The Germans, when they were trying to shoot it across the channel into London, while well, they were setting their guns on the soil of Belgium and of Holland, it was pretty soft ground there, they had to put concrete emplacements in order to put the gun. Suppose you try a move, here's an iceberg, they say. Now, there's some lightweight here. Well, somebody that is only 110 pounds would say, is trying to move the iceberg and you're in water when you're doing it. Then who's going to move? You push the iceberg. Who's going to move? You are the iceberg. Well, of course you are going to move. And then if you're a drop of water, besides that. In other words, if man is what the non-Christian says he is, assumes he is, and that every non-Christian position says, there is not a single exception that's true of modern psychology. Modern psychology, depth psychology, every kind of modern psychology. I'm not saying no good has come out of much of it in some ways, but what I am interested in pointing out that on the point, in the case of every one of them, they assume that man is a product of chance. Now, how can he then have a foundation, something to stand on, in order to oppose the Christian religion? How can the little girl slap her daddy in the face unless her daddy holds her up? How can the sinner say God doesn't exist unless God holds him up? And then he becomes a fool. That's the meaning of the word fool. The folly of it. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, therefore, we should go down with him and say, for argument's sake, at hominem argument, and say to him, aren't you getting tired? You go around with him in the water. Now, let's get a ladder to get out of this water. 
you want to get out of the water? It is, you don't want heavy to die and not knowing what's happening to you, but I'll tell you what happens to you, will happen to you, eternal death, separation from God, agony, misery, boundless, endless, hopeless, despair. How do you know, he says? Well, how do you know it isn't true? You're assuming that it isn't true. I'm accepting it on authority. Of course I am. What else can I do? But you are assuming that you have enough power to say that that will not come to pass. Well, then you're making universal negative proposition, and you're still trying to string the beads. Show me how you can string the first two. Then I'll give some credence to the idea that you may be able to, to string more of them. Well, he tries. He has what my net can't catch isn't fish, as Eddington. He says, look, there is an object, a kingdom of fishes, but what my net catches all that size. But it's pure subjectivism. Science becomes a floating island of ice on the way to the equator. That's all there's left to science on the, if the Christian religion were true. Of course the Christian religion is true. And therefore, of course, even the non-Christian can be successful as a scientist. You can come in, I can come into your house, and I can say it's mine, which it isn't. And I can do all kinds of things. If I suppose I were an artist or a house decorator, I could rearrange things and maybe make them a lot more beautiful than you now have them. But, don't you see, that doesn't take away that it's your house. The ownership title deed is yours. Well, now, let's... Uh, aren't you getting tired yet? Aren't you getting tired? Aren't you getting tired? Aren't you getting tired? Going around in circles, being lost in the woods, flying off a million miles in this direction. And then in that direction, oh no, there is no direction. There is no meaning to the word direction if all uh, points of reference are removed, then it's all blank identity. There's meaning to going east or west in the Pacific Ocean because there is land on the other side and land here. But if there's no land, and if it's all ocean, and if the ocean is bottom, there's, there is no east, no west, no north, no south. Well, aren't you getting tired? Aren't you getting tired? Aren't you getting tired? God brings some men to the hospital suddenly with a serious illness. Then they sometimes admit that they're getting a bit tired. And then you say to them, isn't it time you recognize that you're a sinner? Now, that will not in itself do it. Of course it will not. The Holy Spirit must convict him of sin. But he will use, nevertheless, poor human efforts, the efforts of us all, of any of us, preachers, non-preachers, if we in simplicity appeal to them, don't you see how hopeless it is? Your moral life, your scientific life, your philosophical life, it's all one colossal simple failure for the simple reason that you are assuming that you're not a creature, that you're not responsible to God, you're not a sinner, you don't need repentance. There's no hope for you unless you repent. Now, we had one time a colt, three-year-old colt in the farm. My brother and I had to bring it in, and it was a rambunctious sort of thing. He tore the manger out and whatnot. Well, what we did one time in the winter when it was about two feet of snow, we could, took a long rope, about 30 feet, and let it run. And my brother held the end, and I had the whip. And get out! and made it go in circles till it dropped practically, exhausted. Now, that's what we must do with sinners. 
They will drop. They have to drop. There isn't anything to do except they can't drop into anything because they are nothing. But the point is that you cannot do this thing which is attempted in the traditional method come from Roman Catholicism and Arminianism that you place yourself on this place, leave all connection with your basis and expect him to come out if you only show him the facts and if only show him, show him that logic. Now, to be sure, you must go show him that facts and logic are related to one another, are successfully interrelated on the Christian position. We have got a good deal use we get out of the turnpikes from Indiana to Philadelphia. But it's important if you have a turnpike that there be, a, be an approach to it. A turnpike in the sky doesn't help very much. Turnpike without approaches. Plato's idea, ideas, that's a turnpike up in the sky. You're down here in the water. You can't ever get on that turnpike. Well, only Christianity can relate logic in fact. The question is not one of contradiction or non-contradiction. You can't say the Christian position is in accord with the law of contradiction. The non-Christian position is not. You can't say the Christian position is in accord with facts and the non-Christian position is not. You must rather say facts better be what the Christian position says they are and must be and laws of thought of the human mind are what they are and will be successfully related to the facts only if we think of them as being what the Christian position says of them to be. Now, the problem is not logic and fact, as though both sides were already agreed on a philosophy of logic and a philosophy of facts. They are precisely in disagreement on that as well as on everything else. Now, therefore, the argument must be by presupposition and not by this neutral approach. Now let's look at Bach for a moment. It's in 1919 or thereabouts, he wrote Romans, and then he was obviously under the influence of Soren Kierkegaard, the existentialist philosopher, and he said so. Then in 1927, he wrote his dogmatic, which he started writing, First he was a pastor, then he became a teacher in Munster, Germany. And then he said that he was gradually getting away from philosophy, but he was still under its influence, he says. And then in 1932, he began what he called later on the church dogmatics. It's a great big thing, several volumes, subdivided and subdivided. Somebody has called it the uh, Moby Dick, because it's got a white cover, the white whale. Now. That's in both two, three, four, five volumes. In this volume, he deals with revelation. What is revelation? He says, I believe with Calvin we must start from revelation, sink it right straight down from above. But it turns out that the revelation he's talking about is the revelation of God who is wholly other in precisely the same way that Kant says that God is in that noumenal realm where nobody can enter with his mind or intellect and understand anything. God can't come out of that realm. There is no God, such as the Christian position. God is his revelation, and man's response is faith, is the response to that, and it all happens in that one Christ event. God is what he is, 
in his relation, in his relation to man through the revelation of Christ. And man is what he is in his acceptance of that revelation through faith by participation in Christ. So the contact is between God and man is that of participation. This volume deals with God. And then he deals with the attributes of God. And he says the trouble with, and he is outspoken in rejecting Calvin on this point, the trouble is that the reformers, he says, and the orthodox Jews didn't have a good sound idea of the attributes. They didn't realize that grace is the all-enveloping, all-enclosing universal attribute, and that all other attributes must be subordinated to it. For instance, God is righteous, to be sure, but God, righteousness is a form of God's grace. For instance, when men offend to the, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, they are under the wrath of God. They are reprobate. He uses all the language of traditional reform theology, but the point is this that just like a child who is disobedient to its parents is now for the moment under the wrath, in quotes, of the father or the mother, and the father says, uh, I'll give you a licking if you don't stop this, and then I'll give you a harder licking if you do it again. In other words, the wrath is very serious. Sin is very serious, and the wrath of God is very serious. But it is still true that even so, every man remains a child of God. You chastise your children. You don't whip your neighbor's children. You whip your children because you love them, because you want to make them better. Now that's what God does with every man. They're all his children because they're all in Christ. We're not in any wise related basically to the historical Adam. There isn't any such thing. All are in this Christ event. Therefore, they're under the grace of God. They're always participated in it, even when they are reprobate under the wrath of God then they are still more, basically, the children of God. Now, that means that, he says, the doctrine of election must be changed. It must be put on new presuppositions. He says, Calvin had a horrible face of God, he says, a God who reprobates, who sends certain people to eternal punishment and certain other ones to heaven. Well, he says, election doesn't have anything to do with certain people, one Esau, the other Jacob. It has to do only with the gradations that are in everybody. There's enough of Esau in the best of us and enough of Jacob in the rest of us for none of us to look down upon any of us. That is to say, Esau stands for the idea of evil in all of us. And that must be cured and that must be overcome. The Jacob aspect of all of us must be brought to light. It is in Christ already present. Now, therefore, the first thing that we must change about the doctrine of election, get rid of the notion that it deals with persons. And the second point that we must get rid of is that there is an equality, as though some are reprobate and other forever. Reprobation is the penalt next to the last syllable, but election for all men is the last, the final syllable. And that's his universalism. Now, he, to be sure, allows that man is free even when he is in Christ and that therefore he must have, in a sense, the ability to rebel and does rebel, all of that. Nevertheless, that's the doctrine of God. Universal grace, that's the all-enveloping attribute. 
which appears even through latter, the wrath of God and envelops all men. Well, this deals, therefore, this deals with anthropology, with man. Well, again, it is God who comes through Christ. Christ is the man. He's the only man. He's the only authentic man, the only true man. And we are all men in that we are fellow men with Jesus. Our being is to be fellow participants in the Christ event. Now, here's his soteriology for his, his fourth volume, and therefore the doctrine of atonement and the doctrine of salvation. Now, first of all, he says in this section that he, is, he has actualized Chalcedon. By Chalcedon, of course, we mean the teaching of that Council 451 in which the two natures of Christ were said to be permanently and related but not intermingled. Now, he says the historic Christian church has a divine nature and a human nature and they can't intermingle. Now, that's precisely what they do. God changes. He says, wholly into the opposite of himself. Guns? Well, I wasn't going to use it in German. Holy and altogether or not at all. God is holy man without residue because eternity of God is not something that doesn't enter into temporality. Temporality is a form of God. And Jesus Christ is a secondary divinity the in, in the incarnation, therefore. You must no longer say that there are two natures distinct. You must say that God is holy down into this dereliction and participates in sinful man's condition. He's just as sinful as anybody else in the sense of what sin means. Now then, then, secondly, we must actualize the incarnation, as I said yesterday, because we must not think that the steps that, of work that Christ did for us or experience, that they follow one another in ordinary history. The virgin birth of Christ and his death and his burial and then his resurrection do not follow one another in history. Now that's making mustard of historic Christianity. If you will look at the evidence, you, must, you will be convinced that Bart does not believe the resurrection of Christ. That's been debated, and he says, of course, that he does, but what he means by it is the exact opposite of what historically the Christian church has meant by it. How can you say that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is an ever-present event, that it didn't take place once upon a time? He says the trip from Golgotha to Jerusalem is taking place right now. Well, if modernism did anything worse than that, I don't know of it, to the historic Christian religion. Now, to just illustrate how people are conceived, deceived by this business, the virgin birth, Bart says the virgin birth of Christ, he believes in it, and Brunner denies it. I heard Brunner lecture in Princeton on the virgin birth. He denied it openly, flatly, because there's no evidence for it, but basically because of the fact that in this phenomenal realm, the things that happen there, you see, are not of importance. And Bart believes in the virgin birth. And then people say, isn't it wonderful? How much better is Bart than is Brunner on this point? And we'll give him, we'll chalk up 10 points for Bart on that and zero for Brunner. And then at another point, we'll say we'll give Brunner five and Bart five, and we'll check him out after a while. They just make it above 75. 
they're still on the evangelical side. Now, that's not a way that we can deal with such things as that. Because when Bart says he believes the virgin birth, he does not believe it as the actual coming of the Son of God into human nature in a biological sense in this phenomenal world. The virgin birth for Bart means simply the idea of the hiddenness of revelation. He says so. Then what good does it do to believe in the virgin birth rather than to deny it? I don't believe in the White House. You do, because you like Kennedy. I don't. Now, what good does it do if for you the White House is identical with a telephone post? Can you live in a telephone post? The point is that what Bart means by the virgin birth is no more the virgin birth in the historic Christian sense than what Brunner means by denying it. And the reason why Bart affirms it is that when he attacks Brunner on it, is that he says, well, Brunner attaches far too much important thing, importance to the things of ordinary history. In other words, the very reason for accepting the virgin birth shows how deeply heretical his, his theology basically is. Now he's writing the last volume on eschatology, the last things, and he hasn't finished that, though he's already a long ways on it, and we don't know, but we do know, too, because he's already given us enough to tell us what it'll be. He's already said that all Christianity is in an other realm. It is not in history. Well, that then is the conclusion, the climax of modern theology, the climax of modern philosophy and thought, that man must be so foolish to assert his freedom, he nevertheless must say, God cannot exist, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. For after that, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, in thy condescending grace, thou hast given unto our fathers before us and unto us by their instruction, and through the teaching that we have received in good Christian colleges and seminaries in our homes, we thank thee that we have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are not better than our others. We are not wiser. What we have, we have received by grace. Teach us true humility. But give us holy boldness that in thy name and in thy power we may go forth to challenge the wisdom of this world and grant that many who follow the wisdom of this world, who are led astray in colleges, in seminaries, by this worldly wisdom, may yet be translated out of darkness into thy marvelous light and grant that we may, by thy mercy, be instrumental in bringing them back unto the faith of their fathers. Bless thy church, bless this church, bless this institute, and bless all of us in whatever field we may be, wherever we may be, now as we work for him, that when the day of days does come, he may say unto us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful in few things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Amen.